And we are live, folks, with another episode of the Survival Podcast in Bitcoin Breakout. I have Jonathan Kahn with us today, uh, who I know from a, a variety of things. We're going to be talking about the refugee crisis in Venezuela today and the role that Bitcoin plays uh, in solving problems like that. We're also going to talk about Bitcoin in general, how uh, John got involved with it, and uh, he's actually deeply involved with Bitcoin on, on a great deal of uh, levels. We'll have him on in just a minute. Before that, I wanted to go ahead and remind you guys about our two sponsors of the day today. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. Uh, they've been with us a long time, guys. They've uh, been sponsoring the show now for a couple years. Uh, they just came out with uh, the latest in Embassy Servers. And this is a way to take back your digital sovereignty beyond just the fact that, yes, you can run a Bitcoin node. Yes, you can run a Lightning node. But that is only just the beginning of what you can do with Start9. Uh, you basically can get rid of the concept of cloud computing where somebody else controls your data, your access, and tracks your movements. We can do things on the Tor network. We can stay completely private about what we're doing. We can be our own everything. They have an expanding marketplace. Installing stuff on your embassy server is about the same as installing an app on a smartphone. Really easy to do. And, again, this is something that it's, it's way more important, I think, than people realize that we begin to control our own data uh, in the modern world. And this is like recently I was talking to Adam Curry about embassy servers, and he was like, how does it compare to Umbral? And I'm like, well, I don't know how to do everything on my own with Umbral, et cetera, but I can get a Start9 server, plug it in, follow the instructions, and start running all my own services. Uh, so it makes it more accessible to everybody. Next up today, we're talking about Bitcoin. And when you hear wallets and Bitcoin, you think about something that we keep uh, access to our Bitcoin in. But what about the wallet you actually carry around every day, you know, like the one that I'm carrying around he right here from Ridge Wallets? Ridge Wallet is a great way to keep your data secure because all of these little cards and things that we have in here today, they have RFID tags. They can be, well, they can be sniffed for about $18 worth of parts you can buy on eBay. Or you can get one of these and you can protect it. And Ridge has really grown since they started working with us about five years ago. It's not just a great company for a very secure, very minimalist wallet, but a great overall EDC company. Definitely worth checking out. Remember, uh, Ridge Wallet does do a discount for 10% off everything that they sell for my members. And Start9 Computing, 9% off uh, all the embassy servers. So even on the smallest option, that'll cover an entire year of membership just from that one option. With that, I want to bring our special guest on today, uh, Jonathan Kahn. I know Jonathan uh, as Bit Petro, and I know him mostly from the fact that he is the guy that founded our local Bitcoin meetup. We're going to be talking about the work that he's been doing to help solve uh, the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Uh, that involves Bitcoin and a bunch of other stuff today. But with that, John, welcome to uh, the Survival Podcast and Bitcoin Breakout. Are you muted, John? Did you mute yourself? I did mute myself. All right, there we go. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me and uh, uh, super excited to be on. Uh, fan of the podcast. Uh, I, I do a little gardening myself, so I appreciate all the knowledge you drop. Well, hey, man, I'm, I'm glad to have you on today. Um, can you Let's start off with, can you tell people, how did you personally get involved with Bitcoin in the first place? Um, I first heard about Bitcoin in 2010 and immediately dismissed it as Minecraft money. Okay. Um, and then, again, I came into it through just – purchasing stuff on the dark web and, and that sort of stuff and, and had to had to interact with it to, to play in those worlds um, and eventually got curious enough to start looking at mining, uh, mined a little bit um, on my computer and then did some of the very earliest shared mining uh, where you'd go out and you'd purchase a share of a mining server uh, and then you know somebody would host it for you. It wasn't it wasn't cloud mining, although that was available at the time. But this is probably early early 2013. Okay, so that's about the same time that I got involved uh, on any serious level. It's kind of like you, know, I was aware of it. This can't be that good. 
And it was about 2013 that I started taking that deeper dive into it myself. Um, your background is actually in, like, the oil and gas industry, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so at the time, I was vice president of an oil company, and uh, I helped to arrange the first sale of working interest for Bitcoin. That would have been in uh, towards the end of 2013. Um, but, yeah, primarily acquisitions uh, and, and just land and developing, you know, drill sites. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mentioned, I guess, you saw a crossover with that? A couple from the, you know, part of my being in a small company involved raising money for drilling these wells. And so we would go to the conferences and I was always looking at another angle for, for fundraising. And um, I saw Bitcoin as a very um, frictionless way of, of receiving funds from, um, say, foreign entities. It made a lot of that transactional process much smoother. Uh, you could set up escrow accounts. I mean, that still that was available then, and so um, BitPetra actually was born from the idea that we were going to offer a Bitcoin like settlement desk for deals, where you would be able to go out and kind of mirror what we had done, where you purchase like a percentage of a well, and then we would charge a percentage to either party, and then just get out of the way. Mm. Mm. And. How does this lead you eventually to working with Bitcoin in an attempt to address the refugee crisis in Venezuela? How, do, how does that tie back to that? It seems like a pretty divergent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, you get burned a lot and in, in, you get humbled a lot by Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. And so after having kind of gone down the, you know, uh, more profit-seeking route, I I decided to kind of take a step back and look at the educational side of this and see if there was anything that could be done uh, because I when I would travel to Venezuela, it was very obvious to me. I would tell my family, hey, Bitcoin's $20, Bitcoin's $200. Buy some Bitcoin. It's going to hold its value better than the Bolivar. So even, you know, back then, it was, it was always obvious to me. I would tell my family members and try to convince as many as I could that were there to try to use it. Um, and then eventually I saw a crypto dude on YouTube talking about how he was going to set up a project in Cucuta to help, uh, the refugees in Cucuta. And that kind of tugged at me particularly because I'm, you know, half Colombian, half Venezuelan, born in Venezuela, uh, and, um, by religion, I'm Jewish. So the, the plight of a biblical sized exodus out of one of my countries into the other country, <laughs> kind of tugged at me a little bit. Uh, and then being an Army, you know, veteran and a medic at that, kind of, you know, there's a service component to, to that that you get left with that really drove me to do something about it. Uh, and so I joined that project. That project, because it was crypto-based, failed. Uh, and we came back to Bitcoin being the, the answer. And so we would take money from these crypto projects uh, and converted into Bitcoin lessons and lessons about how to utilize uh, these new tools as a refugee. And we started doing lessons on the street that were very basic, just how does this work without internet? Um, and that was the birth of Crypto Concerta. He's going out to a street vendor. His name is Jonathan. Uh, and we've got the video on our, on our channel on, on YouTube and you can see him learning about a Bitcoin wallet, a paper wallet, and then basically making a sale online for that paper wallet. Um, so, not, not online, I'm sorry, in person um, yeah. for, for, for exchange for goods. And we, then we facilitated the exchange for fiat to him after the lesson. That was our initial model. From there, we grew you know, to like five people to ten people, and eventually we, we were able to... to um, I think impact more than 900 people in all. And this is like, you know, we're, we're back into South Central America looking at this part of the world. There's a lot going on with Bitcoin and crypto as a whole throughout the region. But this is a very different thing than what's going on, let's say, in El Salvador. El Salvador, um, relatively stable environment, far more so in, in recent years. Um, 
there's a lot of debate on how the gang activity has been uh, handled by the, the president there, but it, it has been beaten back a lot. And it's more of like, hey, let's do this thing because it's it's, it's valuable to us. It, it helps with the fact that the U.S. is inflating the dollar, but we don't get any of the, you know, uh, the, the, the bailout money or anything like that. So we get the pain, but none of the, the, the pleasure. And it was more of like a, a market-based, let's see what we can do with this. Where this is much more a, we don't have a lot of alternatives given the situation that we're in with a refugee crisis, right? I mean, first, I want to I want to really drive some attention to the crisis because I don't think it's very well understood or known about. It's not talked about in the media. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about the largest humanitarian crisis in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Um, to you know, the recent uh, numbers put eight million Venezuelans. Uh, having been displaced from their country and fled. Uh, for reference, that's 30 million total population, <laughs> uh, approaching 30% of the country, you know, yeah. fleeing. Uh, imagine, eight, 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 imagine 8 million Texans leaving Texas. That's about the same ratio. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's mind-boggling. Uh, you know, some of the numbers out there, Venezuelan refugees are literally a country outside of a country. There are nations um, that, you know, in Colombia, there's 2.4 million refugees. You know, that's more than the population of, you know, a lot of small countries. Uh, Panama's 4.4 million. Costa Rica's 5.1 million. Um, just the numbers, you know, around the the mountain range that, by the way, you're, you're to leave from – Cucuta to Bucaramanga, you have to cross a peak where people die of just, you know, frost, of just, you know, freezing to death. You're walk, you, people are leaving Venezuela with the clothes on their back or with bags representing money because there's, the, the inflation is so crazy. I looked it up today. Um, to, to year, to date, it's 57% inflation. But it's these in just drop-offs, sharp drop-offs in, in the way that the government adjusts the, the currency rate. And that's not even the real currency rate. That's what's accessible to, you know, the, the people in power. The regular person is experiencing 1 million, 2 million percent inflation. So it's a total economic collapse that's leading them to leave. And then when they get to wherever they're going, they're irregular citizens. So they don't have any status to work. So, I mean, you end up with people just roaming, right, and, and squatting. And that's the reality for 8 million people. Um, and the, recently, about a month ago, the U.S. closed its doors specifically to Venezuelans. Uh, I believe it's Title 42 is the name of the what passed. Uh, but, I mean, certainly closing the doors off to the place where they're walking uh, a distance to put it into perspective from the east coast of the United States, from Boston to L.A. That's what these people are walking to get to, you know, the border of the United States where they believe they're going to have the answers. There's the, that's the promised land. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the crisis. It's, it started because of an economic, you know, and, and, and socio-political uh, movement that is the Maduro regime. And they're basically not... Uh, they're just pirates. I don't know how else to put it. They're, yeah. I think it's important for people to understand how fast that went downhill. I remember 15 years ago, one of the great expat retirement countries was Venezuela. Like, there were articles about how great it was to retire in Venezuela and go live on Margarita Island and how much further your money went and how great the country was and how modern the country was. And so, 15, and so Bush was president when I was reading about this. So it's a while ago, but it's not that long when we look at historical perspective to a complete catastrophic human disaster. And no one was bombed or invaded in war. This was an internal shift in politics that created what is one of the greatest humanitarian disasters that's ever happened. We didn't have a comet hit or a giant series of earthquakes or a volcano. This was a human-made mm -hmm. decline in the standard of living for the entire country. 
Yeah, I mean, you're talking the – by oil reserves, the wealthiest country in the world. Yeah. Um, per capita, that definitely, do, yes. That doesn't, that doesn't come close to all of the other mineral wealth that's there. Um, it doesn't um, it doesn't account for, like you were saying, the tourism. Venezuela was, was one of the leading places to go because it's gorgeous there. Yeah. Um, and now it's basically left to only those in power and everybody else is fleeing from hunger. Um, so back to what we were trying to do is we were trying to educate the people that were crossing the border with these bags of currency that as soon as they, they crossed many times, the, the guards there would be like, yeah, you can, you can leave that half right there. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Uh, and that's, that's the toll to pass. So, I mean, if you look at some of the images, people will forego that bridge crossing to literally cross the river with beds and refrigerators and whatever they could carry on their heads. Um, so that's, that's what happens when you reach collapse. And so, um, CryptoConcern had decided to do something about it, and our, our mission was uh, pretty simple. It was just to reach people through uh, Bitcoin classes that, that basically covered very, very short, concise lessons that they could walk away with. Primarily, it was to disprove the Petro. Back then, the Petro was a thing that was going on. Uh, Venezuela had released its own master of all shit coins. No. Uh, and basically supposedly had raised $5 billion and some, some nonsense. Uh, our project actually ed, audited their blockchain and found a transaction from 1969, so go figure. Uh, it was clearly the, the first blockchain in 1969. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, just that's the, the status quo for anything coming out of the Venezuelan government, right? Yeah. It's just all lies and, and, and posturing. But yeah, so our education was basically to show people here, touch it, feel it, taste it. This is how this works, uh, and leave them with, you know, having had five dollars worth of food or medicine that would translate for them for a week's worth of food, uh, or you know, a pack of medicine that could get them up the mountain. Hmm. And, and and the organization itself is Crypto Concierge. Is that how you say that? Crypto Concierge. Uh, and that, okay. yeah, that, the concierge but... is concierge. So the okay. idea for us is was always to be a concierge service for the merchants. And we started really looking at could we do this in the brick and mortars. Unfortunately, the the regulatory framework for paying your taxes doesn't exist. So de facto, you were breaking the law if you received crypto. Um, and so it was very complicated back then for us to really push that direction. It's much easier now. There's been a lot more development. Colombia has had a lot of pioneering work in that space from from the uh, exchanges and, and other companies that work in that region. Uh, but back then it was a challenge. And so we decided to work with the informal merchants and teach them and focus on, on that side of the world. Um, and we had, you know, great, great collaborations. Um, Again, we started by taking the money from, from crypto projects and explaining to them, look, this is a Bitcoin first thing, and we'll talk about your project, but we're, we're teaching people about Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. And so are you primarily then working with people once they're in Colombia? Yeah, we, okay. we, don't, we can't really set foot in I Venezuela say, like, because Venezuela, you're get shy. Yeah, you're, you're just not able to operate there safely. And actually, that's what caused us to stop operations altogether. We were a victim of a success of our own success. Uh, projects, the project got so big that you know, 100, 300 people with five people working there, just it it kind of adds up to a bad situation when you're giving out food mm. and medicine, and then you say there is no more. Um, so we decided to stop physical operations. We did a little bit more work going into NGOs and other people and to teach them how to accept Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, but then we, we kind of shifted focus into the humanitarian center, which is our current project. So we're, we're seeking to build a Bitcoin humanitarian center. Um, and, yeah, we've recently formed the 501c3 in, in Texas to help fund that goal. So I think one of the things that people don't really get, because there's so many parts of the world where even the poorest people have smartphones and access to the internet. 
this part of the world is the place where still like a ton of these people do not have a phone. They do not have an internet. They don't have anything like that. And you're teaching them how to use Bitcoin. And, and so you already made a comment about using Bitcoin, using paper wallets without the internet. I think this would be a really interesting uh, topic for my folks. Because they go, when they shut the internet down, okay, well, if they shut the internet down, you're going, most people would say this, like, I'm like, well, you're going to die. <laughs> you're not going to be able to function at all. It's usually like a, a phantom objection. But it, there is a legitimate concern like, can we use Bitcoin without Internet access? And kind of, sort of? Or is there, like, how, how do you guys handle that? So two answers here. One, um, you definitely still need Internet, right? Like it's not, this is a fog issue, yeah. not a complete cutoff issue. Yeah. Uh, at a complete cutoff, you're, you cannot effectively be doing transactions on-chain. So there would not be a way for you to use Bitcoin then, other than maybe going by walking to somewhere with an Internet connection and then broadcasting your transaction from there. Okay. Um, so let's just state some, some basics. Yeah. Um, that said... Most of these people have endpoints that give them access to the internet. So there might be, while they there might be a house that has 20 phones, only one of them has internet access, and they may use it as a hotspot. So, or they may have to go to to the local internet cafe or something like that to get access. But they will eventually get access. So what you need to do is you need to provide them a way for maybe using and keeping the coins offline. Uh, so that they can more effectively, you know, keep them safe or transact with them, like say, for example, load a paper wallet with a certain amount and then use that, and that way they can easily interchange, you know, a bill and not, not have trust issue there. All of that to be said that paper wallets are not very safe, right? They're, yeah. they're inherently, you know, uh, have problems. And... Really, we want to start using some of the later technology. This is pre-Lightning. So okay. um, we were we had to use other cryptos back then primarily because a lot of the value would be lost in a Bitcoin transaction. Sure. Because the cost per, per transaction was pretty high back then. Yep. Uh, today with the Lightning Network, that's a completely different topic. So we plan to take full advantage of that now. Um, but... For the more practical use, we also work with SMS messaging for using the transaction ability without internet, but with maybe a relay in between. Mm. And that was a project called Cointigo that helped us kind of be that bridge so we could use SMS phones, non-internet phones, to still give people Bitcoin. Mm. It's interesting that there was a lot of work done that was really innovative in that delta there where Bitcoin didn't have the scale for small transactions and then a lot of it, like Lightning has kind of made that not necessary. Yeah. Like uh, one of one of my friends, a gentleman named Vin Armani, he developed Cointex, so it was Bitcoin Cash over text. And mm -hmm. it, today it doesn't exist anymore. Like there's just not, like it seemed like, hey, this solves a problem like you're talking about. And, and today we're getting to a point where it's it's becoming less of an issue, but it's interesting how many how many things were cobbled together as get buys on this on, on that interim delta. Just as an aside, um, but so my understanding from what I read about it, like the person would have the paper wallet, and maybe they didn't have internet access all the time, but the merchant they would deal with would. So they mm -hmm. would take the per paper wallet to the merchant. And like you said, it is inherently unsafe because if somebody takes it from you, they can get your Bitcoin because they have both sides of the, the information there. They have the – basically, it's a public and private key for a certain amount of Bitcoin. The but funny part, though, is that, that that gives the older generation a tangible thing to, yeah. to hone in on, right? Like, And so then you can access, for example, one of the biggest lessons that I got in doing all of this was when talking to people um, using simple language that doesn't involve any of the technical babble and saying yeah. – uh, a grandma was telling us, "Hey, Mijo, why don't you why don't you just use a, the phone card analogy?" And we we're like, "What?" And like, it's a phone card. If you drop a phone card on the street, what happens? It's gone because you know you have the code, so you can yeah. use it. So yeah. the phone number is your public key. The yeah. 
the other one is your private, and you have ah. to keep those safe because content having access to those two things gives you access to the funds. And so it's an idea that they already work with. You're just massaging it into, okay, now this is a new thing, and it doesn't use a phone, but it does keep money in the Internet. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was a good lesson for us in just kind of keeping things simple and kind of bringing it back to a more tangible example. Um, you, you guys have had a, a, a large number of, like, events and things that you've hosted there. Like, how much? What's the impact been? Things like that. Yeah, so uh, we ran nine total events, um, and we helped about 900 people. So that scaled up. That wasn't 100 per event. Um, and eventually we just had to roll down the events and just shut them down. Um, and we've, we raised uh, about $12,000, which we used to purchase land just outside of the city uh, where we plan to build a humanitarian center. Very, very cool. Um, and then you had an airdrop. What was Airdrop Venezuela Live? What, what was that? Yeah, that was a collaboration with uh, AirTM and with an artist called Crypto Graffiti, uh, where uh, we combined one of our events, one of our lessons, with a um, – it was an art, an active art exhibit that was expressing dissent uh, for the Maduro regime while also educating people about, you know, bringing down Maduro figuratively and literally through tearing down Venezuelan believers that were painted as the mural. And so it was a very, uh, just a master job by, by uh, Crypto Graffiti on organizing and thinking this up. Um, there was even a online component where when you per when you donated, you actually were able to choose the the bill that you got somebody to tear off and donate at that like a little brick, like a little building brick, except in okay. reverse. Um, and so that project uh, split the funds between them between crypto uh, sorry RTM and Crypto Conserje, and we used those funds to purchase the land. Uh, they they went on to use their funds for a series of airdrops that they did with uh, uh, their customers. So, yeah. So if you guys are able to successfully meet your fundraising goals and build this building on the land that you already have acquired, what, what do you envision, like, its daily act? Like, what, what does the person backing it get as the ROI? Not that they get it personally, but what do they know is now happening? What, what, what does this place become? Uh, what is its mission? What does it look like when someone shows up there and says, help me out? Or how, how would that work? So the land is basically on the route from Cucuta down to Bogota. So that is the exit point for Venezuelans. Okay. Um, and it's not on the road itself. It's about a 30-minute walk off the main drive, and that's going to give us that security component that, we're not just going to get overwhelmed. We're going to see people coming. We're going to be doing something about crowd control yeah. with that. Um, and it's not a, if they're if these people are walking for days and days. If they hear about our project, then it's a 30-minute additional walk to get to us. It's not a terrible ask. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we are first going to set up um, classes that basically mirror exactly what we were doing before where it's a $5 donation uh, to each person. That person has to answer three questions correctly. Uh, those questions are basic Bitcoin questions. You know, what is Bitcoin? What is a public-private key? And what is a mnemonic phrase? Okay. Right? We can't ask them too much more, and that's about what they need to, to use this. Okay. Um, and then the real lesson, the, the, the thing that we're really doing for them is actually giving them the Bitcoin, making them do the transaction and getting that I touch it, I felt it, I tasted it thing. Because then it's engraved in their head that this actually is real and it wasn't just something that somebody explained to them. So that's the real lesson that yeah. the, the individual person gets. Um, and then the humanitarian component is the food and or the medicine that they're exchanging with the merchant, right? So... That's the, the most basic, like, uh, structure for one of our classes. 
we plan to slowly kind of ramp that up with uh, more theme-driven things like uh, children, education, like um, maybe tech garage shop stuff, more like dev-oriented work. But initially it's just what can we do to help them on their on their journey? Uh, we can give them access to a global censorship-resistant um, safe monetary network. We can teach them about being able to enter and exit this network, uh, maybe even keep stable coins with them. I know that that's not a popular topic amongst Bitcoiners, uh, but the reality is if I gave somebody a bank account access in this part of the world without access to a brick-and-mortar bank, I could be saving their life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is more important than me driving, um, you know, any point home that I'm going to make. Yeah. So, no, I, you're not going to get hatred from me on stable coins for sure. Um, I, I live for the day that we don't have to talk about them anymore, but we're not there yet. Um, well, and, and they already understand that, right? Like yeah. they're already yeah. in a in a in a economic environment where they're swinging from one one jurisdiction to another. So yeah. they already have to switch from currency to currency. Mm-hmm. So we're not explaining anything too complex there. And so really the next step is once we have given them classes, uh, we will bring some of the more talented ones to be merchants and to teach other uh, crypto concerns, hey, um, like, um, I guess, teaching teachers, right? That's yeah. the concept. Yeah. And, and we're able to spread out through the entire migration route the idea that, hey, you can transfer money and you can transfer services and you can keep value uh, like this. We feel that that's probably enough for, for the scope of what we can do. Um, we would love to work with other organizations to do more. Uh, and we probably will do a little bit more for a select few individuals, like maybe give them some housing at the location for a few days or something like that. But that's going to be on a case-by-case basis. We, we really don't have the funding to support any more than than just the operations of, of a few classes of, a week. Yeah. But, it like, it, this gives people something to anchor on in their new home, at least temporary home. Like, back to the scale here. So, 8 million people have fled Venezuela. Mm-hmm. If your numbers, I think I remember, about 2.2 million have gone to Colombia. Colombia, off the top of my head, is somewhere in a 50 million population for themselves. Yep. So you're looking at 4%? This is why it's a crisis, population right? inflow. So like that would be like 40 million people. No, that would be like that would be like 100 million people coming to the United States, right? 4% of, of – no, I'm sorry. It wouldn't be that much. 4, 12 million. Yeah, 12 million. That would be an inflow of 12 million in a two-year period um, to the United States. And, and, and again, and adding the scale. Let me be not, not looking down at anybody's nose or anything, but, like, Colombia is not the United States. Colombia does not have the resources of the United States. Colombia does not have... Uh, anywhere near the capability of the United States per capita to deal with a crisis like this. So now you've got another 2 million people sitting there that have nothing, and you're trying to give them something, some starting point. It's not just Colombia. I mean, Costa Rica, uh, El Salvador. I mean, every country along the way is receiving these people, and they stop wherever they can stop, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you would. I mean, that's if it's better than where I came from, and I don't think it's going to necessarily get better if I keep going, and nobody will hurt me here, I'll try to figure it out. That's mm-hmm. the story. Of, people think that this is a new thing, but this story of people having to flee in mass, you know, you mentioned the Jews of the Bible. Okay, that's, but that's another example. But there are – history is littered with thousands upon thousands of yeah. stories of this type of thing happening over time. And it's shaped the entire face of the earth. And when people end up in a new place, you can either bitch about it and say they shouldn't be here, which doesn't do anything, or you can figure out something for them to do to be productive. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the goal is is giving them a tool to be productive, right? If they if they're an informal merchant, they have ability to do they have an additional payment rail now that they can use. If they're a formal merchant and and we are 
working with uh, health organizations and with aid organizations, we can provide direct aid and send them um, send them to these merchants and give them the ability to purchase and create economic impact. Right? Like that's that's how we fix this. Is we it's not going to get fixed with you know a mandate. It's going to get fixed with dollars. It's going to get fixed with money. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a term in the notes that I have here from you, proof of work philanthropy. I yeah. like the term, but tell me what it means. So um, as part of our new team uh, for the 501c3 and our new mission and goal, uh, we're integrating a lot of mining to what we're doing. Uh, and so our our thought was to raise funds from public miners and from entities through uh, hash power donations. And so we believe that that's a novel way of promoting um, a project that you want to support because it is, you know, giving the goose rather than the egg. Uh, and so we're able to, if we're donated hash power, whether it be in the machine or whether it be hash power through pointing us uh, you know, hash power to our pool, then in essence, you're giving us the ability to not have to come back next year and ask you for more, right? Um, we need to take those resources and, and drive them to their fullest, and that's that's proof of work doing philanthropy, right? Like that's that's how things should line up so that we're when we're asking for more, it has long-term impact. And, and primarily that has to do with the fact that we're, we're going to be giving away, you know, $5 to a person. Yeah. That well has to replenish itself, and we have to do that from a certain somewhere. Uh, so mining is a fantastic way uh, to highlight how Bitcoin can solve problems like this. So it's basically someone donating instead of straight up Bitcoin, donating some of their hash power to you mm -hmm. for a period of time. Uh, sure, or, or, the, or the machine itself. And, okay. again, as a 501c3, you know, that has tax yeah. benefits for you, yeah. um, if, especially if you're a public miner. You already have these uh, these. So maybe I have some machines I'm fixing to upgrade, and I've got my older machines, and they're not as valuable to me anymore, but I can write off a significant value of whatever I haven't appreciated yet over time. Absolutely, absolutely. I see, I see. Yeah, that I, I get it now. I thought maybe it was more donating my hash bar, but you're saying let's take – Older like S9s or whatever, and donate it. It's all of it, right? I mean, it's, it, uh, it went, when it's profitable and when we have the right, you know, environment to mine profitably, uh, we will, you know, be uh, custodians of that of that computer, right, and run it until it's profitable, until it's not profitable. Yeah. Um, and then uh, conversely, if it's better for us to take the miner and sell it to a market that will use it and, and turn that into funds, we will do that as well. Okay. So there's multiple ways that you can then fund what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, obviously that's one way, but are there other ways people can help and, and learn more about the work that you're doing with this crisis? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they can go to, you know, all our socials. Um, uh, so YouTube, uh, Twitter, and uh, definitely the website. So com. Uh, at the website, you can go at the very top and uh, definitely don't do a direct donation. Um, you can do a hash, a pledge for hash uh, power, uh, pledge your hash power to us. And uh, there are forms there for both. Uh, and if you just want to get involved and learn more, uh, again, you can do that as well. Just contact us, giving you ways for, for you to reach out. And, and you know, if you don't have uh, sats to spare or if you don't have hash power to donate, um, you know, your time is valuable, too, and, and we need people to, to make this thing happen. You know, it seems like long-term it could become very self-sustaining because some portion of these people that you're helping you would think would become, like, successful alumni from a university that give back to the school that they went to. Um, mm -hmm. You would think that a lot of these people, maybe some part of the family can get out. This is often what happens in many countries. Some of the family members can get out, some can't. And then you have a form of remittance that is uncensorable. Or if that other family member has an eventual ability to get out, 
if they have been funded with Bitcoin and there's a knowledge within the family of how to use it now because part of family wisdom, like I can get out with my Bitcoin because you can't have it because it's not here. It's knowledge. It's it's a phrase. It's it's information, right? Like you can't you can't really take my Bitcoin from me. You don't even know I have it. So it seems like there's a whole system that could be eventually unleashed and, and hopefully that these, you know, new residents, members, whatever, of, of Columbia, for instance, can become productive members of Columbia. And I'm sure some hope to someday return. And that may or may not happen. There's people that are sitting in South Florida that still talk about one day going back to Cuba. And, you know, I'd love you to have the opportunity, but I think, Grandpa, you're living in uh, a past uh, term. Like, that. I don't know that that's really in the cards. Like, there's no way to unwind history and, or rewind history. We have to deal with what we have. And look, there's the path of El Salvador. They certainly have done uh, an amazing job at turning it around. Yeah. So never say never. Yeah. Um, but but uh, certainly, I don't I don't know. Anecdotally, many Venezuelans would say that they want to go back or that they would go back. Yeah. Uh, it's simply that you know, for your children, you wouldn't do that, right? Like you just. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a situation. And I think the safety. problem in. Venezuela and the problem that was in El Salvador are dramatically different. One was mostly an organized crime problem with a government unwilling to do anything about it because it was on the take. And the other one is a government-centric problem. So I, I don't know which one's harder or easier to solve, honestly, but I, I don't see that problem getting solved anytime soon. So we have to try to help people you know, where they are and, and with what they're going through in the world today. And I, I, I do appreciate you bringing the scope of this problem to people because it isn't something that we hear about. Because I don't think that it, I don't think it aids the political agenda that we have in the United States right now to talk about this problem. If it did, I think you'd hear about it all the time. But anything that doesn't aid the political agenda, the media agenda, we just, eh, we'll brush that under the rug. Let's talk about something completely different like the World Cup. Well, but, but I mean, listen, this is top news right now, right? And this is the yeah. very confusing thing about this administration is that yeah. we just heard that Exxon is going to be given permission yeah. to operate again in Venezuela. So it, it, yeah. we we are living in times where we have a, an administration that's confused about their own energy policies. Um, you know, they're they're willing to, to punish the energy industry, uh, the, the domestic energy industry at all costs. While helping a you know government that is a despotic, tyrannical uh, regime that is oppressing its own people, it's 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 like the financing balloon with cars. They drop the price and increase the interest. So they sanction Venezuela, but then they're going to pump oil out of Venezuela, which enriches the the power elite in Venezuela. So it's right back where it all it, it proves that economic sanctions at least to, to a country like Venezuela the only people it hurts is the public right like you know speaking that's the case yeah. yeah so unfortunate but that's that that is the hope in in bitcoin right that these people have a direct line that doesn't that isn't controlled or uh surveyed it maybe it's surveyed surveillance by by um the authorities in Venezuela, but with the Lightning Network, I think it's getting harder to do some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, how, how many transactions can you ruthlessly track for empanadas and tacos? Right. Like, right. I mean, I, it, there's a point of, like, I think that's even with the proposed Bitcoin legislation with like the de minimis concept. There'll be 200. It's been about between two and 600 dollars of anything less than that. We're just going to not say as a reportable event. Like, that's government basically saying, look, we know. We have more limits than we'll ever admit to. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I look. It, all of these things are not accident, right? Yeah. It's it's not an accident that you're not hearing about this. Um, it's definitely political. Um, what what is difficult to understand is why the scale is so bad, and 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 it can't. Nothing seems to be a coordinated effort to realize that this is a a regional problem rather than a Venezuela problem. And that really this only leads to a worse outcome because it's the not fixing it leads to, you know, issues like xenophobia and issues like, you know, um, crime, more, more, more crime and and you coming from those people that are desperate. Well, like that comes down to this idea of if people have nothing, they will do horrible things in order to survive and specifically to feed their children. 
Like, if you said to me, would you, would you go over there and knock that dude's door in and steal his food? Absolutely not. But if I was looking at my grandson and I could see his ribs through his skin, I might. Right? There's, there's, And so if we don't deal with this issue, if we keep pretending it's not there, then all of the, the worst possible outcomes will become self-fulfilling prophecies. And I, I think that's something people struggle with understanding because everybody wants to make it this divisive thing, you know, the border being open and all. I think the border is a complete disaster, so I'm not defending it at all. But the other side of it is you have the issue. And in the end, we have a human issue with human beings involved. And if we don't accept that, then, then we, are, we are making the world worse for everybody. And I think that's, that's something people maybe, I think they know that, but they don't want to know that at this point, right? They just want to point at the other person who didn't cause the problem as well and yell and scream at each other. That, that's, and then the, the energy issue, like I heard uh, Brandon the other day say that he has approved something like 9,000 uh, leases on federal land or something like that. Well, what they don't say is that they're all tied up in federal courts so nobody can drill on them and they're not doing anything to fix that. So they're, they're pretending that they're allowing access to American energy while closing off access to American energy to then – let our company pump oil out of Venezuela to enrich the Venezuelan elite while this crisis rages and doing absolutely nothing but pouring gas on the fire to make it worse with these sanctions. Because to me, sanctions is this thing that we've become way too comfortable with in the Western world, in my opinion. Sanctions are an act of war. And when I say that, people get really like, no, they lose their mind. No, you don't think it's an act of war because nobody did it to you. If, if there was a country with the economic power to put sanctions on the United States, and they did so, that caused the kind of suffering sanctions have caused all over the world, led by us, and it was being done to you and your kid, and I'm not talking about you personally, but Americans in general, and it was affecting your children, and they were going without food and medicine and electricity because of those sanctions, you'd be screaming for war. I, right. Look, I'd, I'd say on the weaker kids is all that it ends up being, and the, the elite never suffer in these countries. I'd say you're seeing that play out in Europe right now with Russia, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Germany's bending the knee because they have to, not because they want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they were bending the knee. Now they don't even have a choice to bend the knee because the pipeline's gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, now they're importing the shit out of coal. Right. right. So, I mean, like as much as they can get, as fast as they can get it. So the the fiat mentality of of running running out and saying, hey, we're going to re- replace all of this energy with renewables, uh, even though we know it's not sustainable, and then taking the cheap energy from, you know, the parties that are not your friends because it's cheap. Um, ends up biting you really, really hard if if you're the West. I think that's how that's how sanctions are imposed on us. It's not we can't we can't do it, but somebody can certainly turn the sanctions around on us. And I think that that's something that the West is starting to you know get savvy to is like, hey, this just doesn't work. I mean, every time we try it, it just slaps us right in the face. There is kind of the old Buddhist mentality: you should never hurt anybody because you're only hurting yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's that. I mean, you know. And so if you are going to hurt somebody, it better be surgical. It better be, like, I'm cutting the finger off because it's got gangrene. So if you try to kill me, I will kill you back. But otherwise, don't hurt anybody. I mean, that's – and that's something I don't think that humanity has grown up enough. To well, and the other and the consequence is, you know, millions of people fleeing a country because the country doesn't have the economic backbone to support itself. Yeah, well, and who does flee? This is the other thing. This is like the brain and energy drain, right? So you got to think about the stuff you said people will do to get out of Venezuela into Colombia, right? Brave all this stuff. So who does that? Well, your most motivated people who have already had the most taken from them. So generally they were successful, right? Because if you were poor now and you're poor then, you know, I mean, it's generally like you're motivated, your people that will take risks, your people that can figure out a way to get out, because that's not exactly the easiest thing to do. Uh, my old man used to say, I guess it's part of where I get the whole prepper mentality, he said, like he said, if they ever shut the power off, about a third of these people are just going to lay down and die. 
They're just going to lay down and die. About a third of the people will cobble together and do whatever they're told, and then a third of the people are going to kill everybody else. Right, and, and like that's what's going to happen. So your 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 third of the people are people like, go do something, and like when you have the country go through this, most of your refugees are the people that are capable of doing something. So then, long term, you get this huge humanitarian crisis wherever it goes, but the country itself suffers for the loss of those people, and so it's 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 just bad in every direction that you can look at it, right? If you think about it, like, for the people that figured out a way to fit in and a way to do something, some of the most successful people, wealthy families today in the United States were uh, South Vietnamese that got out at the very end and came to America with almost nothing, and yet they built very successful uh, businesses and lives because they were – well, they're, they're they're not back in Vietnam now, right? They're not there helping their own country, and so – all of this is just a – it's like pulling the drain on the bathtub of humanity and watching everything go down the damn drain. Unfortunately, it's, it's you know, even even worse for the people that actually do leave because a lot of them can't find a way to use their advanced degrees. Yeah. So, I mean, countless professors have been lost hmm. to other work because they have to feed themselves and feed their families. Um, so – yeah, it's it's a catastrophic, you know, uh, intellectual loss for the country, um, and and we'll see. I mean, um, I don't I don't have a very high hope that that this will resolve itself anytime soon, which is why we're operating in on the doorstep of the way out for these people because that's the doorstep for hope for them. If anything, I think we're going to see more of it. I mean, the turn that just took place in Brazil is not necessarily the most encouraging thing, and Maybe it won't turn into this kind of crisis, but generally, full tilt socialism goes to this place. Like, especially in the the less resource rich, from a standpoint of diversity of resources, a nation is the quicker it happens. But like you said with Venezuela, actually they're incredibly resource rich. But there's the difference between having the resource. And being able to capitalize on on the resource, I guess. Well, no, I mean the Venezuelan story is is um, this is what happens when you nationalize oil companies and and basically expose all of the talent that kept that equipment running. Yeah. And then when things got bad, everybody went and started tearing the stuff apart for parts. Um, so when you are literally taking the copper from the lines to sell it. Yeah. What you strip mining system? You strip mining the mine. It's not collapses. There's nothing left. That stuff yeah. is gone. Yeah, the stuff um, and the people. It, it actually is eerily similar for me as as someone of Ukrainian descent uh, to starvation uh, that was done by Stalin in the Ukraine, where they took over the farms, but they didn't know how to farm, and they got rid of all the farmers, and they brought a bunch of city people into farms, didn't know how to farm. It's going to be the people's farm, and then everybody starved. Yep. And then people, again, you're harvesting the, the seed for next year as food for this year. It, it, it's exactly the same dynamic playing itself out two different times in history in two different industries, but it's the same dynamic. Remove the brain trust, remove the incentive, and now all of a sudden, gee, nobody really gives a shit. And whenever I, I, I talk about you know coming down on government and people say, you know, I'm too hard or whatever, Tell me a time that you went to go to a, a large government facility, like a DMV or something, you were excited to go deal with government employees. You are like, yeah, I can't wait to go down there today. That doesn't exist because when a person has that kind of a job, they, they're only so motivated. And the, 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 how, how motivated is that is not very. And so everything falls apart. Oil extraction and refining – is a very complex business. And for all the money those companies make, there's a ton of, you know, smaller pieces, parts companies that lose their ass all the time. You have a background in that industry. It's a high-risk industry that requires a lot of incentive and a lot of risk and a lot of talent. And if you remove the incentive and the talent and only leave the perception of risk, you, you get nothing. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and the location of these facilities are important too, right? Like the yes. the oil from Venezuela only has a few places it can be processed, mostly here. Mm. Um, and and 
on the looking at the other side of it, the oil that we make is not suitable for processing here because our refineries are, are primarily designed for the heavier, more sour crudes, right? Yeah. So, and, and the products that you make from all of the different petrochemicals come from the heavier grades of, of, uh, of um, crude that you get out. So, really, it, there's, there's so many – this is such a complex uh, situation. It's not economic. It's not social. Um, it's not environmental. It's all of it. Um, and, and so it needs both, you know, a government arm addressing it, but it also needs voluntary support from, from the public for these people in, the, in this crisis because there's really nobody else that's going to stand up for these people. I mean, so are you saying Venezuela doesn't have any refining capacity? I believe most of their refineries have burned. Oh, okay. So uh, Venezuela and crude is probably being processed in Houston and in and, and Beaumont. Uh, that's the so that's where most of it was refined for for the vast majority of the history of Venezuela. Is huh. most of that crude was um, ConocoPhillips and uh, Valero were, were the big companies in the United States that had those contracts. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure of the state of where the refineries are in Venezuela right now. Yeah, there are some. But I know that a lot have had issues with uh, generators going down and valves and pumps going down. And once that stuff goes down, it's it's gone. Like you said, you get to a point where i got to feed my family. If this thingamajig, if I can get five bucks for it as a scrap, I'm going to sell it. I don't care that it's a $50,000 part. Yeah. It goes on a rig. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how can people find out more about the work that you're doing here? Uh, and then I want to transition to some, some local stuff. Sure. Uh, so, again, the website is Crypto, C-R-I-P-T-O, Conserje, C-O-N-S-E-R-J-E.com. And you can find this on Twitter, and you can find this on Medium, and you can find this on YouTube. Uh, we've tried to be pretty good about uh, documenting all of our work on Medium, uh, so you can find a lot there. Um, and, you know, we... Where we're just students of, of Bitcoin trying to bring the good word of Satoshi to the people and, and do what we can. And I will have uh, links to everything that you sent me along with your guest app in the show notes today. That will be on the audio stuff, folks. There's a link down in the video notes. It will be available about one hour after we finish the live version here. If you click on it now, we're not done yet, so we'll be there yet. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about Fort Bitcoin, which is a uh, local beat-up, uh, Bitcoin meetup group that uh, you started. And uh, I joined back this summer, been to a few of your meetups. They've been really great. You, what made you decide, like, hey, we need, a, we need a Bitcoin meetup group on the Fort Worth side of the Metroplex? Um, so I beat myself up for not having done it sooner. Uh, I should have done this when I started Crypto Conseje because I should have started, you know, from first principles where I'm at. Uh, but having had that experience, I, I didn't want to bring uh, some of that uh, to Fort Worth. And then I had my friends email me and call me about this energy summit that TCU was hosting. And I attended this blockchain and energy summit. And they basically hardly spoke about Bitcoin. And it just galvanized me into, nope, my university is going to be talking about Bitcoin, not blockchain. And uh, shortly after that, the mayor announced that Bitcoin would be, uh, you know, a, a goal of the city as far as like mining Bitcoin and kind of putting a, a flag in the sand as far as like a tech center. Um, and, and so things timed out well for that. But um, really, it's just about bringing Bitcoiners together in, in Fort Worth. I, I felt like Dallas had more of the, the banker Dallas blockchain feel, and mm -hmm. so Bitcoin uh, fit more with the Fort Worth uh, boots, cowboy hats, and guns uh, uh, motif, and so the West uh, will win with Bitcoin. It, it, it's a really great group of people too, and and I love the way that you do it. Sometimes there'll be a you know discussion or whatever, but usually it's just people hanging out, getting to know each other, and having a couple adult beverages. And thanks to you, I discovered that. Uh, amazing speakeasy-themed uh, bar in downtown Fort Worth called Thompson's Bookstore. 
that was pretty cool. I think that was the first one that I came to, and uh, it, it's 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 been pretty cool. Now, but you, uh, I, I think I might actually be partially responsible for this because I tried to get uh, Gary the Bitcoin Boomer to do something with the the the, the sporting clays range that's down here off eight twenty. He went ahead and did it, and we've got like a meetup coming first week of December. This at uh, this 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 gun place. You want to tell folks about that? Yep. So uh, Fort Bitcoin, uh, like you said, is is our uh, local Bitcoin meetup. Uh, we try to do it uh, the second Tuesday of the month, um, usually around five or six p.m. Six p.m. If we're doing it at a, a venue with alcohol or and food. Uh, in this particular one, there's going to be some uh, classes associated with our with our event. So five p.m. will be the start time. Uh, and we're doing it at Defenders Outdoors, uh, which is just north of uh, the West 7th area. Um, so you can go to Fort Bitcoin on meetup.com and get details there. Um, but, yeah, we're going to do a bit of hanging out and uh, shooting some guns. The ladies are – it's a ladies' night, so the ladies will be getting uh, free uh, training from Defenders that they're doing. And so uh, – Guns, Bitcoin, and, and girls. So um, is this like bring your guns type of, of, a, of a meetup then? Uh, yeah, there's, so there is a range there, uh, yeah. and I plan on bringing my weapon and uh, doing a little practicing uh, using the range. Uh, but, yeah, I figured we'd change it up a little bit this time. So typically what we do is, is we go to a new bar uh, every time. We try to highlight the best places in Fort Worth yeah. uh, that – you know, will have us and, and are good for talking and kind of hanging out. Um, and so we've done quite a few that were, have been amazing uh, downtown and at the stockyards. And so this time I heard you guys talking about the, the clay shooting range, and I, I just looked at their website and, and saw that they had something coming up at the same time as we did. I was like, yep, yeah, let's do it there. And I'll make sure I have a link to uh, the Fort Bitcoin Meetup. I was trying to pull it up on the screen right now, but Meetup.com's being a a bitch with me right now. I'm not wanting to play nice, but I don't know. Maybe I'll bring a, a, a sidearm or two myself because this will be for the indoor range at, at that time of day. Obviously. Yeah. And they rent. Uh, they do rent uh, weapons there as well, so you can go get a fully automatic and go have some fun. Oh, I did not know they had full autos there. That, 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 they have that, a lot of fun toys there. Uh, they have a, a lot really of nice range. It's, it's really fun. It's also expensive. It is expensive, <laughs> but again. It's not expensive to rent the gun. It's expensive for the ammo when you start rolling. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can, uh, I think you can, they do let you bring your own ammo. Um, yeah. So you just rent the, rent the range. Uh, but, yeah, eventually we'll have to do one at the clay range as well. I'm, I'm excited yeah. about that. Yeah. I just didn't know what the weather was going to be like. So I, I yeah, no. No, this better. time of year, it's a crapshoot. It can be gorgeous like it is today. It can be mm-hmm. freezing cold and wet, you know. Uh, we're actually um, we're going to be doing this summer 15-year anniversary party for the Survival Podcast because it's been 15 years in June. And we're probably going to do like a two-parter, like something in the evening that's more, you know, hang out in a bar or whatever. But we're probably going to do like an – for the people that want to do it, that are part of it, uh, an early day shoot there because it is a pretty cool place. And y'all, if you're in the Fort Worth area, man, you really should uh, join uh, Fort Bitcoin Meetup. It is a really cool group of people. The last one I was at was uh, I didn't even know Tim Love had that place. I can't think of what it's called now, but it's kind of the Italian theme place uh, that we were at. I guess. A oh, the Mel's. Yeah, yeah, and at one of Tim Love's restaurants and. There were two or three people from this audience that heard about it, you know, on the show and came in. Uh, one I hadn't seen in a while and got to see him again. So come hang out, guys. It's uh, it's one thing to hold Bitcoin. It's another thing to become part of the Bitcoin community, and you never know who will show up, too. I mean, we had Texas Limit, one of them, and um, I've been on, on Parker Lewis a bit to try to get him up here, so maybe we'll get him up here sometime and – and what have you. But, Jonathan, thank you for being with us today. We're going to have Jonathan back on in the future, guys, to talk about some of his other initiatives as well. Uh, I appreciate you being with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, real quick here, I wanted to uh, remind you that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping where? 
tspaz.com. Doesn't have a lot to do with Bitcoin today or survivalism, uh, but we are talking about, you know, it is the, the, the holiday time of year, and the item of the day I have for you today is one of my favorite little speakers. I was looking around to see if I had mine in here. I don't, but it's the Anchor Soundcore 2 uh, Bluetooth speakers. These are IPX7, fully waterproof. You can get two of them, and they'll pair together. Uh, I have, like, professional AV set up out in my main shop, but in my back shop, about 800-square-foot building, I don't have anything out there. I just use these in my smartphone. Uh, really great sound, and they're on sale for 30% off today. So they're like 28 bucks a piece. So you can get two of them for, what, $56. And you have that full stereo sound. They'll still work independently. They're just great. I love Anchor. They're one of my favorite discount brand uh, electronics companies out there. Uh, I have sold literally tens of thousands of Anchor products over the year. I have never had a single complaint by somebody said, I got something wrong with my Anchor product, and they wouldn't fix it. Now, you sell enough electronics, some of them are going to have problems and all, but they, they fix the problem, which means they just say, don't worry about it, we'll replace it. So uh, check them out, and remember, you can always help support us. How? Do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z. You do that. No matter what you buy, you will help us out, and we appreciate you for that. Uh, tomorrow we'll be going back into more of the prepper-themed world with our guest. And uh, Thursday i got something really cool coming. So I'm still dealing with this issue where I can't really edit, not the way that I typically edit anyway, uh, due to a problem with a computer that should be rectified this week. But rather than risk it, I've asked several members of the expert council to do a live show with me. So we'll have like an expert council panel live on Thursday. I haven't checked email while we're on here with Jonathan, so I don't know who else might say yes to this. But of those who I've invited so far, Nicole Sauce will be on, Tim Toolman Cook, and Nick Ferguson. So we have... You know, the permaculture and homesteading world well represented with both Nick and Nicole. Nicole, of course, with the business and entrepreneurship on top of it. And then Tim's full man cook with that business, entrepreneurship, and the handyman stuff. So, and then, you know, me, myself, and I, and I'm sure some other folks will show up. I invoke, invited old man Pugliano, but nah, he's got a doctor's appointment like old men do from time to time. So uh, he probably won't make it. But I got a few others uh, that I've invited. We'll see if they come, and we'll try to do the expert counsels with some live panels from time to time, because I think that'll be interesting versus just you guys sending questions to get answers. I also invited Ken Berry, but I'm not going to say whether or not he's going to come yet, because that's we'll, we'll see if he shows up. Anyway, with that, I will uh, catch you guys tomorrow with another guest interview, and then we'll rock through the week. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you being with us today.